Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. We're coming up on the fourth Sunday now. In fact, we are arrived at the fourth Sunday of Lent. It's a Sunday in which we focus in the Eastern churches, so many of the Eastern churches, we focus on an ascetic, a male ascetic, and next Sunday will be a female ascetic. And in between, we have another great ascetic, St. Andrew of Crete. So a lot of asceticism going on, because that's actually what the Great Fast is about. It's what the Lenten season is about. And we need guides to help inspire us and to guide us. In Eastern spirituality, asceticism is very, very big. It's big in our liturgy. It's big in our spirituality. It's big during Lent, because Lent is a time to practice asceticism. Because you see... In the Eastern churches, actually in the whole church, but it's particularly the case in the Eastern churches. As St. John Paul II said in his great apostolic letter, Orientale Lumen, from where we get the name of this program, Light of the East, John Paul II said that monasticism is the reference point for all of the baptized. And that includes even married people, marriage and celibacy. Marriage and virginity are actually two sides of the same coin. They're not diametrically opposed. There is a great affinity, a very unique mystical kind of relationship between the married person and the monastic in the Eastern traditions. They really revere the monastic. They revere the ascetic because especially for marriage, asceticism is essential because asceticism helps us to love. Let's face it, marriage is about love, isn't it? In order to love, we have to be able to make a gift of ourselves. In order to make a gift of ourself to someone, a free gift, faithful, full, fruitful, we have to be able to die to ourself. In other words, to die to that which prevents us from giving of ourselves, as a couple does in marriage. That's where the asceticism comes in. That's where the dying to self comes in. And also, monasticism is about, just as the word itself says, mono, mononasticism, monasticism, in other words, one, it means singularly focused on God. 
And for every married couple, the key to the happiness of your marriage is that you are, as individuals and as a couple, singularly focused on God. That becomes number one. It's the two of you and God. You individually and God, and the two of you and God. That's the whole key. So really, monasticism subsists in marriage, and marriage subsists in monasticism because monasticism is a way of being espoused to God. Just as I, as a celibate priest, am espoused to the church, so too is a monastic espoused to God. In fact, in Burton, Ohio, in our Eparchy of Parma, we have a wonderful monastery with a group of wonderful, young, joyful nuns that do a lot of prayer, especially for others. That monastery is called Christ the Bridegroom. And it's a new monastery, and they chose that name because these girls have a very palpable sense that they are indeed the bride of Christ. And to live that way is what is at the source of their happiness, their joy. Really, these girls wear smiles on their faces, even though they fast and abstain and they practice very ascetical lives. They know that they have the best spouse in the world, a mystical spouse, and they live it that way. They live as girls who are espoused, just as married couples must live as though they are at the same time monastics, at least to an extent, to a degree. St. John Chrysostom would emphasize this. He would say that the married couples should first and foremost be good monks. In fact, you know, the crowning statement on your marriage would be, gee, he would have made a great priest or she would have made a great nun. Conversely, the chronic statement on a celibate, a monastic, would be, she would have made a great mother and wife. He would have made a great husband and father. See, that shows that both of them are living fully their respective vocations. They're both living it spousally, and they have the elements of one another's vocation within their vocations. So monasticism is very, very revered in Eastern churches, and it should be especially, believe it or not, among married couples. St. John Climacus, meaning St. John of the Latter, one of the ascetics, the monastics we focus on as we are so deep into Lent in the Eastern churches, he was born in 579 AD, and the place of his birth is unknown, but because his writings refer so much to the sea, some conclude that his early years were near the coast. At age 16, he came to Sinai, which had three forms of monastic life, and they're referred to in his book. Inside the monastery walls near the church lived the monastic brotherhood under the direction of an abbot. The second lived as close-knit families under the guidance of a spiritual father. The second were the hermits who were scattered through the surrounding desert. And the third were small groups who lived as close-knit families under the guidance of a spiritual father. During his lifetime, John experienced all three types. After his profession, as a monk at age 19, he became a hermit. Now, I want to stop here and just point something out. Hopefully, if there's some young people listening or if there are some parents who have teenagers, point this out to them, as I like to tell my own teenagers. When God wants to get the job done, he seems to call on teenagers. That's right. Look at the most prominent example of all, the Blessed Virgin Mary. Many times, God calls on people of young age, of teenage years, to do something marvelous, and here we have the story of St. John Climacus, a marvelous ascetic who we still read about and talk about and pray to to this day, all the way since the 6th century. And he entered monasticism at age 16, officially becoming a hermit at 19. And while he was in solitude, he received the gift of tears. He reduced his sleeping and he fasted moderately. 
ate everything allowed by the monastery, but in extremely small amounts. I'll stop here again. The gift of tears. This is actually another prominent dimension of Eastern monasticism, the gift of tears. It means an overwhelming and very real sense of our sinfulness, of our repentance, the point where we're moved to tears over the grief of our own sins. Now, this might seem extreme by our standards, but see, herein lies the problem. Our standards need to be readjusted. We need a deeper, more authentic baseline for our standard of spirituality. We should be moved to tears by our sinfulness, and not because we have a negative view about ourselves or that we're trying to mortify and beat ourselves. It's because of our understanding, our sense of the glory, the goodness, the beauty, the love of God, that in contrast In contrast to that perception, we see that we are so, so far from that glorious God, so unworthy. And so our unworthiness should become more apparent to us in the light of God's magnificence that we contemplate and become more aware of in the spiritual life. So there's a contrast between that magnificent light, and the more we understand it, the more repentant we are. I mean, we become more joyful, but we also have a deeper and more real, authentic sense of our own sinfulness in light of so great a God, as so bright a light as God. So that's why these great ascetics would have the gift, notice it says gift of tears. After 40 years as a hermit, John Climacus, meaning John of the Ladder, is also called John the Scholastic, was elected abbot of the central monastery at Sinai against his will. Now, that's very typical. These great monastics were so humble, they had to be sometimes dragged, kicking and screaming, resisting to things like ordination or become an abbot. They feared the pride that they would be vulnerable to. So that's how holy they were. They didn't seek ambition and status. They feared it because they knew that human beings cannot handle very well status and power and position, and they feared it. They knew it would be a threat to their sanctity, to their humility. Now, it was during this time of his life as an abbot that he wrote his book called The Ladder of Divine Ascent. In other words, it's like the stages of ascending the heights of the spiritual life. In the Eastern churches, process is very important. Ongoing forward motion, divinization, theosis. These are words for that. That's very big in Eastern theology. At the request of a superior of a nearby monastery, Raithu, John was asked to write in a book and send to this monastery the divine vision he had seen upon the mountain, as did Moses in the Old Testament. That divine vision, something like Jacob's ladder we read about in the Old Testament, is this ladder divine ascent, which we look at and contemplate during this week of Lent, as we have gotten very, very deep into Lent. What we're going to do is we're going to look at this ladder of divine ascent. We're going to go through certain stages of it. We won't go through every one of it. There's actually about 30 stages, 30 rungs of the ladder, but we're going to highlight a few to help us on our journey during this ascetical time. We have, as I mentioned too this week, the great can of St. Andrew of Crete. That will be coming up after the feast of St. Mary of Egypt. She's the next ascetic, the female version. So I guess we're being kind of politically correct here. We're giving equal time to a man and a woman, ascetic. (laughs) So we focus on John Climacus, Mary of Egypt, and St. Andrew of Crete. 
We'll talk more about this latter divine ascent when we return. I'm Father Thomas Leia on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. This is Bold Talk with Father Thomas Loyola. We live in strange times, full of contradictions, many of which we create and then force upon ourselves. An example. To hear the rest of this and other Bold Talks with Father Thomas Loya, visit TaborLife.org and go to the main menu and click Subscribe. I'm Father Anthony Bush, pastor of St. Stanislaus Costco, the Sanctuary of the Divine Mercy in Chicago. And you are listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Father Loya invites you to see the new Tabor Life website. That's taborlife.org. When you land on the homepage, you can see how Tabor Life can help improve your marriage, your life, and how to see the beauty of God's created order in your personal life. On TaborLife.org, you can book Father Loya to speak to your organization about the key elements of leadership, relationships, and sexuality, as well as speak on cultural, social, and political issues. As a renowned artist, Father Loya can speak about how art, liturgy, and prayer fit together. On TaborLife.org, you can see the many ways of how you can communicate with us. And as you look to the lower right-hand corner of the page, click on the messenger icon for live chat. And finally, Taper Life Institute is a 5013C charitable organization that earnestly needs your support. Click on the support link at the top of the page and donate. After all, Taper Life is powered by you. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loyal, your host. As we come to this fourth Sunday of Lent, focusing on a great ascetic, we have these little guides, St. John Climacus, St. Mary of Egypt, St. Andrew of Crete, and all the ascetics, actually, and the martyrs. We really put them up in front of us during the days and weeks of Lent as, well, as our inspiration, as our guides, that it is possible. And these people reach sanctity, and that's how they reach sanctity. We follow their guide, follow their example, and we do a lot of asceticism, in other words, dying to self, renouncing, abstaining, fasting. Before going any further, I do want to say hello to some wonderful people out in the California listening area. I was speaking at the Couples for Cana conference for married couples and couples preparing for marriage recently. This is run by the Murray family. I'd like to say hello to them, to Peggy and Joe and, and their priestly son, who I had the privilege of celebrating the Mass with. And I'd also like to say hello to Karen Bono, who introduced herself to me as a listener here at Light of the East. And I'd like to say hello to all of those who attended the Couples for Cana. It was at the Holy Spirit Parish in Fremont, California, which is basically in the Oakland Diocese, San Jose area, that part of California. A wonderful parish, very big parish, very busy parish. I want to thank the priest there for the hospitality that they showed towards me. They even gave me a bottle of California wine to take home with me. So I really valued that. Although I'm kind of uh, stepping back and basically giving up wine for Lent, although not entirely, but uh, basically I am. But I appreciate the gift and just as well. 
So to all those at Holy Spirit Parish in Fremont, California, to the Murrays, and everyone connected with the Couples for Cana, Leah, who helped out too, who I met once again out there, and also Karen Bono and her family. Hello and greetings from all of us here at Light of the East. Thanks for listening. It was great meeting all of you. Now back to our star today, St. John Climacus, and his latter divine ascent. Let's look at the first step, renunciation of life. And I'll read a couple quotes from him. Do whatever good you may, speak evil of no one, rob no one, tell no lie, despise no one, and carry no hate. Show compassion to the needy. Be satisfied with what your own wives or husbands can provide for you. If you do all this, you will not be far from the kingdom of heaven. So renunciation of life. Now, the reason why we need the example of the ascetics, because as you can hear just from this very first rung of the ladder of divine ascent by John Climacus, renunciation. It flies in the face of everything we're told by our culture. Our culture programs us to take on, to think we can't live without so many things, material things. But St. John of the ladder, first rung of his ladder is renunciation of life. You know, Renounce these things. Not that they're necessarily bad, but step back and say to yourself, do I really need these things? How badly do I need them? You see, Lent is a time when we so-called give up things. I like to say, rather, we abstain or fast from things or we renounce things so that we can renew our vision of them, renew how we interface with them. Instead of being controlled by things, which is another word for addiction, it's a false god, Instead of thinking we absolutely need and can't live without these things, we step back and we look at these things and we say to ourselves, you know, I can live without them. And when I return to them, if I return to them, I do so more judiciously, more freely. I don't need these things. When you really get down to it, as we look at life, as the monastics do, that's why they, they owned nothing. They lived so simply. They really whittled it down to what they really need. And so much of what we think we need, we don't really need. At least we don't need it as badly as we think. And Lent is a time to step back and do that kind of inventory. It's very freeing. Even stuff in our home. Get rid of a lot of stuff and junk. Stuff we haven't seen or used in a while. And that's difficult. It's difficult for me. If I put one more new theology book or book of spirituality into my rectory, I think the walls will explode. I go into a bookstore and I promise myself I will not buy another book here. You tell me you have enough books to read. But I walk out with five or six or ten or something. (laughs) They're kind of irresistible. But even those things, I have to ask myself, do I absolutely need this? Can I go without at least for now? And ask that of yourself in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of areas of your life. That's what we're supposed to be doing during Lent. Not just focusing on one or two things to give up. That's okay. That's good. That's minimum. But actually going into every aspect of our life and pulling back, cleaning house, and returning in a way in which we are less cluttered psychologically, spiritually, and physically. We may not even return to those things at all. Okay, let's look at another rung of the ladder. Detachments, very similar. We should be careful in case it should happen to us that while talking of journeying along the narrow and hard road, we may actually wander into the broad and wide highway. So what he means here is that detachment is something like that renunciation of life. We should be able to, what I call, see, pray, and pass on. Think about Genesis, going way back to the beginning. 
That is how God instructed Adam and Eve to live in the Garden of Eden. Live in a way that's detached. Enjoy things here, but don't try to appropriate anything or possess them, especially this one particular fruit of this one particular tree, the tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil. But what Eve did, and eventually Adam, was what I call the fatal reach. She reached in a way which was not detached, but attached. She reached in a way which appropriated things. Oh, I like that. I need that. I want that. I'm attached to it. God wants us to go through life in a way that's very detached. Ever notice little babies, how they have this little firm grip in their little tiny hands? I always enjoy putting my little pinky finger into the hand of a little baby, and I love the way they grasp onto it. They cling because they're, they're insecure. They need that security. But life, maturity, psychologically and spiritually, becomes really a process, symbolically speaking, of that baby's hand opening up wider and wider to the point where we grasp nothing again in life. An open hand can receive. It is also free to give. And that's how life is to be lived. That's how the great ascetics lived. They were open-handed. They possessed nothing. They claimed nothing except their own sinfulness. So this is the spirituality of detachment. Let's take another rung of the ladder. The remembrance of death. This is actually uh, step number six on the ladder. The remembrance of death. Now, this is big in the Eastern churches and ought to be big in our lives. Now, this may sound depressing, but actually it's something we really need. John Climacus says, Someone has said that you cannot pass a day devoutly unless you think of it as your last. How many times do we hear about people dying suddenly? And we probably think to ourselves, wow, tragedy is terrible. Glad it wasn't me. And we don't imagine ourselves dying that way, but we don't know. Those persons didn't know. So death comes according to God's design, and we must always be ready for it. And if we remember our death, which means we're really remembering our judgment that will come with death, as we say in the Eastern churches, the fearsome tribunal, the fearsome judgment of Christ, as we remember that, it should call us to repentance, maybe in the gift of tears. It should call us to refocusing on what really matters in life. You know, as the scripture says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. It's not worth it. You may not wake up that next morning. And what was the last thing you said to a loved one? Was it something out of anger? Did you refuse to talk to each other? Did you go to bed angry? Was it worth it for that to be the last encounter you had with a person on this earth was anger or hate? So the remembrance of death is vital for a really an honest growth in spirituality. How about rung number eight, anger? The first step toward freedom from anger, he says, is to keep the lips silent when the heart is stirred. The next, to keep thoughts silent when the soul is upset. The last, to be totally calm when unclean winds are blowing. You see, he emphasizes here a lot of self-control. We think we have to respond to our anger. And what is anger? Anger is probably one of the most often confessed sins. The things I think we, uh, one of the things we all have a special problem with. Anger really is a defense mechanism. Anger is a reaction to something we perceive as being threatened. The key to overcoming anger, you know, we have this saying, follow the money trail. Well, follow the fear trail. 
follow what it is that we think we're trying to protect. We're, we're being afraid that it's going to be somehow encroached upon. So anger really comes from a fear. It's a fear of something being encroached upon that we are holding dear. So the question would be, the self-inventory is, what is that that we are trying to protect? What are we trying to protect? Is it worth protecting? Can we protect it less? It might be worth protecting, but most of our anger rarely involves that. It usually involves trying to protect something that should not be protected, such as our own agenda, our own pride. These are just some of the rungs on the ladder of St. John Climacus's book of the Ladder Divine Ascent, which we focus on during this week in the great season of the Great Fast. I want to thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab. And on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit ByzantineCatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. to EWTN for inspiring Lenten programming. This is Father Thomas Petrie, Godly Counsel on Morning Glory. Lent is a time of spiritual renewal when the church journeys with Jesus Christ, who is both God and man, and in his humanity he can suffer, he can be hungry, he can die, and he does all of these things for us. So during this season, we journey with him and offer our own penance. We give things up just as he gave himself up for us. We pray more to be closer to him, and we give alms to help those who are in need just as Christ's sacrifice helps us. During this Lenten season, all of us at EWTN Radio are praying that you grow closer to the Lord and that this be a holy time for you as you prepare to celebrate his suffering, death, and resurrection. Linton programs now through Holy Thursday on EWTN Radio and TV. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh.